Good afternoon. Welcome to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, joining you every Monday afternoon, 1 to 2, talking about theology, recovering the joy of theology, the delight in the Lord's Word, our, our, our fantastic gift that the Lord Jesus has given to us and that he has revealed who he is and what he has done for us in life and in death so that we might live forever with him. That's what we like to talk about, this distinction between uh, law and gospel and the joy and the comfort and the peace that it gives to us. If you want to join us on air, I'm going to give out the numbers, so jot it down. If you're in St. Louis, the number is 314-821-0850 or from anywhere in the world in the universe, 800 800- Seven three zero two seven two seven. Today we're going to have on in a few minutes, uh, Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, a good friend of mine, Pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Los Alamos, New Mexico, and he's going to bring in whatever, uh, and we're going to talk about that. And then I'm going to throw something at him and see what he does. But I want to talk first before we get to that uh, for the first uh, for the first segment of the show. I want to talk about something that I think is an important theological topic, but it is often neglected. In fact, it's often missed when we read the Bible, and that is the throne room of God, the the heavenly council. Sometimes it's called. It was the attention of the ancients, of the prophets, and of the apostles. But it's just fallen out of our attention. And in fact, when I think of heaven, I don't know how it is with you. But when I think of heaven, it's it's a kind of very empty place. It, there's God there in some sort of abstract way, and then otherwise it's kind of light uh, and white and big and wide open. And, and that, in my own imagination, is how I picture the heavenly throne room. But that is wrong. That is not how the Bible tells us about the throne room of God in heaven. In fact, the Bible, uh, if, if there's any word that would be most appropriately used for the heavenly throne room, it's crowded. There's tons of people there. I mean, people, angels, living creatures. It's a loud place. There's all sorts of activity that's happening in the heavenly throne room. And one of the marks to get us into this topic, and I'd love, again, to hear your thoughts on it if you want to jump in, 800-730-2727. One of the, uh, one of the um, uh, things that we want to consider when we think about the heavenly throne room is that, that to stand in that place is what it means to be a prophet. God says to Jeremiah when he's ta- in Jeremiah 23, when he's making this distinction between the true prophets and the false prophets, he says that the true prophets are those who have stood in the counsel of God, and the false prophets are those who have not stood in the counsel of God. So have you taken a trip to the heavenly throne room? This is going to be the question that's going to distinguish between the true prophets and the false prophets. And so the true prophets go to this place, either by vision or dream or by the gift of the Lord. They go to the heavenly throne room, and they come back, and they report the things that they heard and the things that they saw there. So, and the first of this, the first one to do this is Moses, who is given instructions for building the tabernacle when he's up on top of Mount Sinai for 40 days, covered by the cloud, and he's given instruction, and the Lord says to him there, build a copy of the things that you see. So that the tabernacle, think about this, this is amazing, the tabernacle, the altar, the bronze laver, the ministry of the priests, the holy place and the holy of holies with the incense altar and everything else around there, all the accoutrements of the tabernacle, these are made to be a purposeful reflection of the heavenly throne room. Ezekiel sees this heavenly throne room, and he sees the the beasts, the four living creatures on wheels like fire. Isaiah sees the heavenly throne room, it breaks right upon him when he's there in the temple, and he sees the angels singing, holy, holy, holy. John, who's in, on, exiled on the island of Patmos, see, is, goes into this heavenly throne room and sees the throne there, and seated on the throne, marvel of marvels, 
is the Lamb of God. Now, I think, and I'm going to give you guys a list here, because I think there's five major things that happen in this heavenly throne room. And and when we're talking about this heavenly throne room, we're not talking about some sort of, um, you know, this is not a parable or some sort of analogy or um, something like this. This is a this is a true place. Now, how we can see it and understand it is maybe a little bit beyond us, but we have these pictures of it in heaven, and we see in the heavenly throne room that there's five major activities. The first is conversation. There's conversation between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This eternal divine conversation is happening there in heaven. And we get a little glimpse of it uh, throughout the scriptures, these conversations between the Father and the Son. For example, you have um, a little a taste of this conversation at the baptism of Jesus, where God the Father says, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And we, we get a little glimpse of that conversation again at the Transfiguration, where God the Father says the same thing of Jesus. Here, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. We get little glimpses of that heavenly conversation all through the Psalms. And I think one of the most wonderful things to do is to track down in the Psalms where we have God speaking to God. So, for example, Psalm 2. Uh, today, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Or, or Psalm 110. Verse 1, which is amazingly enough the third most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1. Now you get bonus points if you know the most popular and the second most popular. You can call in, I'll send you a copy of the large catechism. Uh, but the third most popular Old Testament verse quoted in the New Testament is this Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So that's God talking to God. That's the heavenly conversation. So that's the first thing that happens in the heavenly throne room. The second thing that happens in the heavenly throne room is that this throne is like a court. And God, who sits there on the, on the throne, is the judge. We see a picture of this, for example, in Job chapter 1, where the devil, Satan, the accuser, comes and brings accusation against Job, and God is hearing the case of Job. That, um, that there is a heavenly trial... And that each one of us has our case being heard by God the judge is this, um, in fact, wonderful and in some ways terrifying picture of the heavenly throne room. Can you imagine it? I mean, it is scary enough, fearful and frightful enough to have to appear before a judge in a human court. But the Bible tells us that all of us will appear before God and that even now our case is being heard. Now, now, there's a lot of theology behind this, that the heavenly court is a heavenly throne. I mean, the heavenly throne is a heavenly court. But the chief thing we want to remember is that Jesus goes into that heavenly court as our advocate, the one who speaks for us and the one who presents the, the case of uh, the, the, the evidence of his blood so that we might be declared righteous. The third thing that happens in that court is that there are petitions that are heard. And here we start to realize that the the courtroom of a king in the ancient world was not like the courtrooms that we have now. In fact, in the United States, we have these divisions of of, um, of governance. You know, you have the executive branch and the judicial branch and the legislative branch. So you have one part of the government which makes the laws, another part that executes the laws, and a third part that judges the laws. At least that's what you're supposed to have. But all of those were bound up together in one place in the ancient world called the throne. And that's true, certainly, for the heavenly throne, that God makes the laws 
that he uh, that he executes the laws, that he tries the laws, that the judicial branch and the legislative branch that they're they're all from that same heavenly throne room. And the thing also that would happen in the ancient world is that if somebody needed something, you would go before the king and you would make a petition. We know this is also true for the heavenly court. In fact, John sees the heavenly court filled with incense, and the angel explains to John that the incense in the heavenly courts are the prayers of the saints. So this ancient old psalm that was sung at the evening sacrifice, let my prayer rise before you as incense and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice, so that our prayers rise into that heavenly court and we go there to make petition. Recently been studying the book of Esther, and it talks about the the court of the king, Ahasuerus, and Esther says that nobody can go into that court unless they're bidden to come and make a petition. And the only law is that they should have their head cut off unless the king points the golden scepter and accepts them. Well, if it's that way in the earthly courts, surely it's even more so in the heavenly court, except for the Lord has invited us into the court to make petitions. The fourth thing, and I'm going to run out of time talking about the list, but we got conversation between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have a trial. We have petitions being offered there. The, third, the fourth thing that happens in the heavenly court is praise. This is the picture of Revelation. It's the picture of Ezekiel and Daniel that whenever anybody stands in that heavenly court, that all the people around them uh, are, are there falling on their knees, praising the Lord who sits on the throne. The 24 elders are throwing in their 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 crowns before the feet of God the Father, and they're praising Him who has all power and who controls all things that are and are to come and so forth. So praise and worship happens in the heavenly court. And then the last thing is ascending. From the heavenly court, people are sent. The prophets are sent from the heavenly court. The apostles are sent from this divine council. Jesus himself comes forth from this heavenly court, and he returns to the same. So there is a sending that happens. Uh, who, who will go for me, the Lord says, when he calls Isaiah, who will go for me? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And so Isaiah also is sent from this place, from the heavenly court. Now, I'd like you guys, as you go and study the Bible and read through the Bible, uh, rejoicing in the scriptures that are there, to keep an eye out for this heavenly court. And one of the ways that you see it is any time you see this this kind of key word in the Bible, throne, the throne of God, God sits on the throne, you know it's talking about the heavenly courtroom where all of these five things, maybe more, are taking place. Now, one more thing to wrap up this conversation about the heavenly court, and it's this. We have to have a good understanding of this heavenly court if we want to understand the theology of the ascension. Forty days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. In other words, Jesus entered into this heavenly court. And Jesus now, as the one who lived and died for us, is participating in all five of these heavenly activities. Do you, see, do you see what I mean? Jesus is now as the one, as the lamb who was slain sitting at the Father's right hand. And so the conversation that Jesus is having with God the Father is of his crucifixion for our good. If there's a court case that's happening in heaven, Jesus is there as our advocate. He, again, is presenting the evidence of his blood in the heavenly court. And God the Father receives that evidence and declares us to be holy and righteous. That's the doctrine of justification. Absolutely stunning.
If petitions are being heard in the court, Jesus is now there before the throne of God as our intercessor. Like it says in Hebrews chapter 7, he ever lives to intercede for us so that our prayers are joined with the prayers of Jesus. We pray in the Spirit through the Son to the Father. And praise, well, Jesus is there in his body with his wounds as the one who receives the eternal praise of men and angels and all of creation. He is there uh, not as creature, but as creator and redeemer, the one who gives us all that we need for this body and life. And then the last thing, sending, Jesus says, it's good for you that I ascend into heaven, because if I didn't go, the Holy Spirit wouldn't come. But because I ascend into heaven, I will send the Holy Spirit to you, so that just as Jesus is before the throne of God in heaven, interceding for us, making our case on our behalf, so the Holy Spirit comes down to us. And in the throne room of our heart, in the courtroom of our own conscience, the Holy Spirit is there interceding, interceding, preaching the same thing that Jesus preaches in heaven, namely the forgiveness of sins and the sure promises of life everlasting. So that Jesus, when he ascends, it's not just that he leaves, it's in fact the most important thing is where he's going. He's going to the Father's right hand. He's going to the throne of the universe, and he's going to take up the scepter and rule the nations all for the sake of you, his people, all for the sake of you, his church. So the heavenly throne room, the heavenly council, the heavenly court, this is a biblical doctrine that brings great joy to us, especially as we see it and rejoice in it. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, the pastor of Hope Lutheran Church. This is Cross Defense that you're listening to. Enough of listening to me monologue. We're going to come back and experience some theological adventure with Pastor Brian Ketchemeyer. I've got no I told him, bring something curious that you think is interesting. I don't know if it's going to be news or some theology thing. He, who knows what he's got up his sleeve. So he's going to bring that into the conversation, and we are going to talk about it on the other side of the break. Stay tuned. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Psalm 122, verse 1. Each weekday, the servants of God at the LCMS International Center gather together to receive the gifts of God in His Word. I invite you to join us weekdays, 10 a.m., for a live broadcast of daily chapel services on KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The prophet Isaiah chapter 55 verses 10 and 11. Begin and conclude your day with the word that accomplishes the purposes for which it is sent. Morning prayer at 7 a.m. and evening prayer at 5 p.m. Weekdays on KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. The broadcasts of morning prayer and evening prayer are underwritten by Lutherans for Life.
You hear our voices every day as we speak the gospel, share the latest news, or for insightful and sometimes entertaining talk. Why not share your voice with us and send us your feedback, suggestions, and questions? Leave your comment at 314-996-1542. Be sure to follow us on social media, too, so you can like, comment, and share your favorite posts. Drop an email to KFUO at KFUO.org or send a snail mail letter to Worldwide KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, Pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Co-host of also Table Talk Radio. Try to avoid that if you can. Uh, we've been making some videos uh, lately on the YouTubes. Daniel is my executive producer, also my son. And we've been doing some stories, especially of the martyrs. Uh, Martyr Monday, we called it. Someday later, sometime later on today, we'll, we'll publish the story of Perpetua, who was martyred in the year of our Lord, 203 at age 22 in Carthage. Stunning, especially as we think about the news of those dozen Christians that lost their lives in the church bombing this weekend and realized that, that martyrdom or murder in the name of Je- in the, uh, because of we confess the name of Jesus is not far from any of us. And we want to consider the stories of the ancient martyrs strict in our faith. So you can check that out somewhere on the YouTubes. Wolf Mueller, search for Wolf Mueller 1, I think. And, uh, and you'll find it there. I have joining me now for the rest of the show. My great friend and a great theologian, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Los Alamos, New Mexico, Pastor Brian Ketchemeyer, who's probably more affectionately should be called Old Bri. Old Bri, welcome to the show. <laughs> I'd prefer Old Testament Bri. How about that? <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, what? Uh, how are things down in New Mexico? Oh, uh, well, it's uh, much warmer this week. Uh, last week, uh, it would drop down to uh, a little bit below freezing. <laughs> but this week, the sun's out, and we're kind of, uh, uh, this is a little bit strange, uh, unseasonably warm. I heard uh, uh, some advertising that you put together. Well, I don't know what this was, a couple of, last week. And um, I think this is great, a church growth strategy, is you weren't saying, hey, you guys should come to church here at Redeemer Lutheran Church. What you were saying is, hey, confessional Lutherans, you should move to Los Alamos. Get a job here. That's great. This is like uh, it's like community development slash evangelism. How's that? How's that going? Any takers so far? Uh, not yet, uh, but we're still hoping uh, hoping for that uh, to be the reality. Uh, <laughs> it is amazing how how many times over the years in our little teeny city of Los Alamos, I run into people who listen to issues, etc., and whatnot. And they know of a Redeemer Lutheran Church because they've heard my voice before. But here we have the, the nuclear research laboratory here, uh, where, of course, they uh, developed the first atomic bomb. And those people with those kind of skills uh, might be interested in getting a job here. Nice pay, by the way. Yeah, nice pay, nice views, nice church. Yeah. What else do you need? That's yeah, right. I know. <laughs> All right, old Brad, what do you got for us? I said, bring whatever you want and uh, and dump it on the plate, and we'll eat from it. So let's uh, let's hear what's got your attention and what you're interested in. Well, you know, what I've been doing for the last uh, 11 weeks or so is uh, I'm teaching with Wittenberg Academy. This is uh, an online classical education for homeschool students, high school age. Of course, they go down lower than that. But I've been uh, teaching Old Testament with high school students. Uh, what a blessing that's been, having high school students read through uh, the Old Testament, uh, reading through the prophets, reading Luther's prefaces to the prophets, and then writing weekly essays on what they've learned. I mean, this has just been amazing. 
And uh, we've been going through, uh, we went through the book of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Right now, in the last uh, two weeks, it's a 12-week course, we're, we're going through the minor prophets, all 12 minor prophets. And, and I think the key is sometimes when you look at these minor prophets, these are smaller books. They're not minor because they're insignificant. It's just that they're a smaller length. You can fit all 12 of these prophets on one scroll when you have this old Hebrew scroll. And so they're minor in that sense. But sometimes because these books are so small, maybe three chapters, maybe one chapter, it might not seem like there's going to be any gospel there or anything about Jesus. But I think that this is the key, as we've been studying this with my class and my students and looking at these texts, especially in these minor prophets. Uh, this is where you see the minor prophets bring a person before the divine tribunal. And it, it's there where we will see a justification taught most uh, precisely and clearly. In fact, that's what we see throughout the whole Scripture. That's what we see with the Church Fathers. Uh, this has been the case, that when you understand that you go before God, who is the judge, and you stand accused because of sin, you stand uh, uh, condemned, these prophets are basically summoning you to appear before this divine tribunal, before the court, and so you have this very strong law that, of course, exposes all your sin, but the whole point and the purpose, then, is to give you this wonderful good word, this good news of the gospel that uh, points you to your Savior. So you'll see this in the Minor Prophets, and I think this is most beneficial when we look at these Minor Prophets, and we understand that God himself uh, is not wrath, God is provoked to wrath, God is love, God is mercy, and because that's who God is, that's what he does. Uh, God, God is love, so he shows love. God is mercy, so therefore he is merciful toward us. And when the, the, the minor prophets, just like all the other prophets, are trying to bring the people of God before this divine tribunal, they want the people to see that God is primarily merciful. But you can't see the mercy of God without the Incarnation, without the second person of the Blessed Holy Trinity, without the mystery of the Incarnation, that he's the one who stands as the mediator, the high priest, the one who stands between us and God's wrath. And it seems to me, uh, Pastor Wolf Miller, that lately there's been a lot of people who, who see uh, that this idea of God's wrath is something that uh, we don't want to talk about or it's insignificant or not important. And so they kind of shy away from this, and people have a tendency to say, let's not talk about the God of anger and wrath. Uh, let's talk about the God of love and niceness and, and peace. But, but I think that the problem we have is we, we're not correctly uh, viewing what God wants us to see in his scriptures. He wants us to see that he is love. He's not wrath, but he is provoked to wrath because of our sin. In fact, all of the idolatry in the Old Testament, this was people trying to make God merciful, trying to make God into something that they wanted him to be like, uh, kind of like them. Ah, man, you threw out too many things there. Okay, so I'm writing all these things down. <laughs> because I, I had like four things that you talked about, and then you throw in this beautiful thing that the, that the idolatry was to try to create God to be merciful without... All right, so okay, so let me go back there, and we'll, maybe we'll end up there as well. But uh, I've got a theory. I think I've told you this theory. I know to tell now. I'm going to tell it to you and all the world, and so you can tell me that I'm wrong while everybody's listening. Uh, by the way, if you are listening and you want to jump in on the conversation, I got the numbers from Stephanie here: eight hundred seven three zero two seven two seven. You can call, and you can get on air with Pastor Ketchmeyer and I. Uh, but this, I this theory. 
that Luther himself, who was a who was a professor of Old Testament and especially was lecturing on the on the minor prophets, that that the distinction between law and gospel comes from reading the minor prophets. We would think that if you want to find the distinction between law and gospel most clearly in the Bible, you would maybe find it like in Galatians or Romans or something, and surely you find it there. But I think even more clearly you find it in the minor prophets. They come hammering with the law, and then they sweep in with the sweetness of the gospel in stunning ways. It's almost like two very distinct preachings. And that's exactly what the law and the gospel is, these two very distinct preachings. So did you did I tell you that, that theory that I think that's where Luther it came clear for Luther? I've heard of your theory plenty of times before. The only thing is I've never actually seen Luther say that. But <laughs> Well, I'll find it, I'm sure, at some point. Now, so, okay, so you talked about the Heavenly Tribunal, which really matches, what, I mean, I had an opening monologue on how the five activities of the Heavenly Courtroom, what happens before the throne of God, and the chief one being that we are there brought on trial, and Jesus comes into that place as our advocate with the evidence of his blood. That fits really well there. Then you took a jab at modern theology, not having wrath. And then, but here, I, I want you to unfold this idea a little bit more. That in the Old Testament, how did you say this? That idolatry was the attempt to make God merciful apart from the incarnation. I said something like that. Yes. <laughs> so you got so give us an example, and maybe if you could, as you are think, if you have a particular minor prophet text that you're thinking of with that in mind, that might be fun to look at. But unfold that a little bit more. Yeah, the, the, this whole idea here is that uh, when you have idolatry, again, we want to always be clear that idolatry is not statue worship in and of itself. Uh, that that's not what idolatry is. Idolatry is worship without God's word. And if you don't have God's Word, you don't have the promises that are all fulfilled in Jesus. And instead of having God's Word and the promises of Jesus, what you're going to end up doing is worshiping in the way of the world. And that's going to be the issue at hand, is you're going to try to worship and mimic uh, what the contemporaries are doing and say, how do you guys worship God? How do you have access to God? And I think that that in itself is a key point of, of, of contention. In idolatry, you have a man-made system of how you can approach God, how you have access to God. So in the Old Testament, when we see the prophets come, the prophets like Elijah, I mean, you see Elijah when he confronts uh, King Ahab with all of the Baal worship there, you have the text say clearly that Elijah, who, by the way, stands before the face of God, <laughs> he stands there, he's going to give you the word of God. And all this false worship is not a way to approach God. And in order to know how to uh, approach God or how to see God, you have to listen to the prophets who are seers. They see the vision of God on the throne, a God who is there and God who is now speaking, conversing to the prophets and telling the prophets to go and speak what I give you to speak. See what I'm giving you to see and share that vision with others so that they can see it too. In all this false worship, they have a, a false access point, a, a false way to approach God. In fact, this is a Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. So in all false worship, what you have is a false image, a false idea of how you think you can approach God, where Jesus is the true image of the invisible God. Uh, he's the only one that gives us access to the Father. So when you have this uh, idolatry, you're trying to make your own method, uh, your own way, your self-chosen uh, holiness, 
the ideas that you think that, that this is what is pleasing to God, and it ends up being the same thing that happens to be pleasing to you. It's uh, <laughs> what you like to do. You think God likes you to do it. Um, but, but it has to do with all these visible images. So when you have a statue, that becomes the location where you have access to God in the invisible realm. And then this is where the prophets, uh, the true prophets of God, will mock them and say, that's not a doorway to heaven, that's, that's a doorway to nothing. <laughs> that's a, a doorway to iniquity. Uh, like the big joke when uh, Jeroboam brags about his temple at Bethel, which means house of God, and the prophets say, go ahead and go to Bethel, go to Beth-Avin, which is house of nothingness or house of iniquity. That's, <laughs> it's not going to bring you before God's presence. But that's what idolatry is. It's, it's, it's you doing something to approach God. In fact, Luther likes to talk about this idea that when you are making an idol, it is the work of your hands. It's your works that you're trying to do to appease God's wrath. So idolatry is works righteousness, just no matter what. And it could be the work of building a stick to represent this place where your own self-crafted God can be appeased, or it could be much more, I mean, something much more subtle, presumably, but it's, it all comes back to self, to self-righteousness. You're trying to, you're trying, you're reconstructing the court to where it's not you're that on, you on trial and the blood of Jesus that testifies, but it's a different sort of courtroom, a different throne room where, where what, you are the judge or... There's some other way to get you off the hook, or you're presenting the evidence of your own good works to be righteous yourself, or what? I mean, the whole idea of an of an idol is you are making a deity in your own fallen likeness and image. I mean, again, remember in the beginning when God created us, He created us in His image and likeness. That was without sin. So we were originally righteous, right? But after we fall into sin and we rebel against God... Now everybody who is conceived and born of the seed of Adam, well, we are all now conceived and born in the image and likeness of Adam, a rebel, one who is in animosity with God. Now, so the whole irony is that the Creator originally created us in His image and likeness, but now fallen humanity uh, makes an idol, makes a God in a fallen image and likeness. So you're, you're trying to be God. You're trying to decide what is right and wrong. You're trying to be the judge, you're the one who's trying to quit yourself. And when we use the word justification, sometimes people say, oh, well, justification is not a word that we use in everyday uh, English. Well, sure it is. We use it all the time when we, we try to self-justify. Hmm. We try to de declare ourselves right for what we did was wrong, and we're trying to give up all these excuses why it's, it's right and it's okay and it's acceptable, and I'm not the sinner that you think I am. It's hmm. called self-justification. Hmm. So 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 okay so self justification so so talk about the difference there so I I do, or, or maybe not talk about the difference maybe just draw these lines so bind them up together so that idolatry is self justification I mean so try to con if I don't believe that if I no 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 idolatry was you know they would go and they would sacrifice a cat to some seven-armed statue or something that's idolatry and my own attempts to be righteous in my own sight that's not idolatry show me how do the prophets uh how do the prophets get around that how do the prophets show that well the, again when the prophets are speaking the word of god they're trying to bring you into god's presence so you can see uh what god sees what the prophet sees himself 
uh, like, for instance, let's look at uh, Isaiah chapter 58. Uh, okay, a good book, right? <laughs> Isaiah, right? Isaiah 58. Here's where the Lord says, Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like the shofar horn, right? Declare to my people their transgressions to the house of Jacob their sins. Now, in Isaiah 53, what we see is the prophet going to proclaim, sounding out this shofar horn. Now, we, we know in the Old Testament that you have the shofar horn. The, the first time that we hear that ram's horn is actually at Mount Sinai. Uh, this is Mount Sinai. The sound goes out. The people are trembling because they're in the presence of God. And so here's the prophet announcing and alarming and gathering and saying, now everybody, listen up. The Lord is here, and he's here, and he's going to, uh, uh, as the only holy one, and you're not holy, you're not righteous, all of your sins are going to be exposed. Well, well, Isaiah is talking to the people of God who think that they are right in God's sight. But actually, they're right in their own sight. They're doing what they want to do and what they think God pleases them. So in Isaiah 58, when he says this, uh, he, he's, the God sends him out to cry aloud as this trumpet, the shofar horn, so that the people can see their own sins and iniquities. He goes on to say, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if, <laughs> as if... They were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. So here you have the people of God who are, are saying that we're doing the right thing and everything is okay, and what we do is pleasing to God because it pleases us. And in fact, this is where in Isaiah 59, the very next passage, we have that, that passage is taken out of context quite a bit. The passage is actually spoken to the people of God in Isaiah 59, in which it says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. Uh, so throughout the prophets, when, when you refuse to listen to God, when you reject the Word of God and resist the work of the Holy Spirit, God comes back and says, well, if you don't rejoice in my voice, God goes and says, I'm not going to rejoice in your voice. It's kind of a, a divine dialogue. So if you don't hear God through his word, God doesn't hear you in your prayers. But yet here's the people of God thinking that what they're doing is pleasing to God, uh, that God loves this. Uh, in fact, in the book of Amos, you know, he talks about, get that, that annoying sound out of my ears. <laughs> I don't want to hear it anymore. <laughs> it's, uh, but but they, they think that everything's fine. And this is where the prophet is going to say, no, no, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And through the book of Isaiah and all the prophets, when the people draw into God's presence, they want him to see all of the sacrifices that they're making, and they want him to see all the blood that's being shed, because they think, they presume that God likes a whole bunch of sacrifices. So if he likes one sacrifice, a hundred sacrifices will be even more pleasing, or a thousand, or a million, or whatever it may be, just blood everywhere, as if God just likes blood in and of itself. And every time they come to him and say, hey, look at all the blood that we're offering to you, God, God looks at them and says, you know what? The blood that I see is the blood of you that's on your hands from your neighbor, where you have hurt him, where you've harmed him, where you failed to uh, help him sustain his life. And this is always this constant. When you go before God and you say, God, I want you to look at my works and see what I've done that pleases you, then God says, okay, if uh, you brought it up, let's take a look at your works. And then God starts looking at all the works <laughs> and exposing all the sin. <laughs> so, 
So when you go before the divine tribunal and you're before the throne, the king, either you're going to say, hey, God, look at my works, or you're going to keep your mouth silent and you're going to listen to the works of God that he's done for you his blood that he shed for you, uh, his works to bring you the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. That's great. Pastor Kachemeyer from Redeemer Lutheran Church in Los Alamos, New Mexico. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller from Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. We're talking about the Old Testament law and gospel. I got a surprise for Pastor Kachemeyer. For you, this news story, oh man, you're going to love it. Historic colleges struggle to answer the question, what is a woman? <laughs> That's what I want you to that's what I want to hear your opinion on after the break. Stay tuned. We'll be right back on Cross Defense. A long-standing tradition here at Worldwide KFUO is to broadcast live worship services for those unable to attend worship or for those who benefit from hearing God's Word online or on KFUO. This Sunday, our 8.15 a.m. worship comes from Ascension Lutheran Church in St. Louis, Missouri, where Reverend Matthew Clark presides as senior pastor. Our 10.45 worship comes from Hope Lutheran Church in St. Anne, Missouri, where Reverend Timothy Ostermeyer presides as senior pastor. Come worship with us on Sunday mornings on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. Hi, I'm Mary Schmidt, Development Manager for KFUO. Do you want a simple and convenient way of making planned gifts to KFUO Radio? A donor-advised fund allows you to choose the timing and amount of your gift, along with making gifts to other ministries. If you have questions about donor-advised funds or other planned gifts, call me at 314-996-1518. We'll meet with you to answer your questions about donor-advised funds to your radio station, Worldwide KFUO. On May 14, 1948, as the British mandate over Palestine came to an end, the People's Council approved a proclamation that declared the establishment of the State of Israel. This proclamation included a closing reference to the Rock of Israel, one of the names of God in 2 Samuel 23.3. The land of Israel was the birthplace of the Jewish people. Here, their spiritual, religious, and political identity was shaped. Here they first attained to statehood, created cultural values of national and universal significance, and gave the world the eternal book of books. Placing our trust in the Rock of Israel, we affix our signatures to this proclamation at this session of the Provisional Council of State. Engage with the Bible in its historical significance through the ages. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, your host, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Teller of stories of martyrs at Wolfmuller 1 on the YouTubes. Uh, friend of Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, Redeemer Lutheran Church of Los Alamos, New Mexico, who's been giving us this glorious, beautiful doctrine of the prophets. And now I'm going to totally change the subject to the worst thing to talk about, <laughs> which is how we manage to live in these gray and latter days, especially in the midst of what is called... the revolution and but even more than that because now we're not sure even if that category of sex is appropriate and i want to i want to get your thoughts on this i was reading a news story and this is the gist of it i'll give you some quotes but this is the gist of it there are a number of uh of women's colleges 
uh, that, that exist in the United States. They're old, historic. A lot of them uh, very kind of storied histories. Most of them very liberal. They've been kind of the breeding ground for the feminism. But now they have a question, and that is, how should you consider transgender applicants? A question that did, wouldn't make sense in any place in the history of the universe until 20 seconds ago. You know, But the 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 women's colleges are trying to figure out if they should let people, transgendered women or transgendered men, into their colleges. Here's a couple of quotes, okay? Propelled by increasing social pressures and Title IX guidelines issued during the Obama administration, many of these institutions have rewritten their admission policies to change and clarify who will be counted. So take, for example, Mount Holyoke College, which, according to the article, says, students who self-identify as women can be considered for admission. We recognize, and here's this quote that I want to, <laughs> we can kind of stop here and camp out for a little bit and talk about it. We recognize that what it means to be a woman is not static. Traditional binaries around who counts as a man or a woman are being challenged by those whose gender identity does not conform to their biology. Whew. All right, Pastor Ketchermeyer, <laughs> what do you think about that? Um, what this is is just a uh, description and manifestation of the rebellion the creationists in. I mean, this is the state of rebellion against the Creator. Uh, God creates us in His image and likeness in the beginning. And remember, when God created the first man, the first human being, Adam, uh, He forms the first man from the ground, uh, the Adama. So Adam comes from the Adama. So you have that first man, and that first man, it's not good that he's alone. And why is it not good that he's alone? Because he can't uh, procreate. You know, you, you can't continue this uh, this gift of life. So you have the gift of life given to the man, and the man is formed from the ground, but without the gift of a woman, then the man cannot continue to procreate. So then what God does is he then he takes from the side of the man, and he builds a woman. And so right from the beginning, we, we see a, a very clear distinction between man and woman, that a man by himself is not good, uh, he's alone, he can't procreate, you can't continue life, which is a gift from God, and then you have the woman who's taken from the side and she's built, uh, which is banah is the Hebrew word for a building, uh, for the verb, and, and of course you got the noun, a building itself, so that the woman is like a building, a structure. And as the woman who has that womb, within her is formed and built a new being. You know, the two become one. They unite in the flesh, and you have a third. You have a child that is now in the womb of the woman, the building, in the building, if you will. And so the child is built, and you have procreation. Well, what we continue to see right now is just this manifestation of this rebellion against the Creator, that we don't want to be who God made us. We don't want to do what God has uh, revealed to us in His Word, in His will. And so this is all uh, just a manifestation of that rebellion, that I don't want to be who God made me to be. I want to be something else. And that's trying to be a god. You're trying to mold and make and build yourself into your own fallen and corrupted image, uh, even more so than what it already is. So you look around and you say, I want to be like that person or this person, and you, you are 
recreating yourself in an even worse state than you were when you were conceived and born in sin. I think I think that's an amazing sort of thing that I mean that this there's this distinction that came forth in the article and it said that a gender identity does not conform to biology. And, and so so apparently this you know this exists as a thing where how I feel on the inside is distinct than how I'm created on the outside and now there's apparently a choice you're going to have to go with one or the other and the w- without even question the idea is well whatever I am whatever I feel on the inside is really the me and so I now have to go and and like you said recreate or change what is created on the outside so there's this basic Gnosticism that divides up the soul from the body and and even it goes beyond that because it assumes that if um, that the me is not the body is not what's created but the me is the thing that's on the inside uh, and and so that has to be brought to like you said to recreate ourselves according to our own image rather than rejoicing in the in the image in which we are created by God even this whole idea, like you said, they're trying to make a separation between the body and soul. Uh, ultimately, understand theologically what's happening here is this is where sin and death come in. Uh, this is what the devil wants. The devil wants us to separate the body from the soul, and this is actually death, right? And this is what sin does. And in that process, trying to separate us from God, because that's what sin does. Sin separates us from God. But in, in these texts of institution, where God is the one who institutes this marriage between a man and a woman, and you have this lifelong companionship, uh, that they're able to live in community, they're to love each other, to, to honor each other, respect each other, uh, cherish each other as gifts from God, that it, it's within that estate that God himself says that the two become one flesh, not become one soul. And that, that even that idea in Christianity that we've had floating around for years now in American pop Christianity is the idea of trying to find your soulmate. Well, this this is all related. I mean, if you're going around telling everybody I'm looking for my soulmate, it's like this idea, like you have Gnosticism, that it's more spiritual to just look for the soulmate, not the body mate. But yet, when God <laughs> you're looking for the flesh mate, that's how the Christian should talk. Because <laughs> right? you're being united, and the two become one flesh. Not <laughs> That's great. I'm the, this is what all the singles out there should start saying. I'm looking for. I'm not looking for my soulmate. I'm looking for my fleshmate. <laughs> that because, makes it pretty because clear because you're because God mate, does you say you're one flesh. You can yeah, have that's procreation. Right. You know, <laughs> so you have to have the body in order to have procreation. I think that's fantastic, man. Looking for the fleshmate. I, I see. I wanted to start a thing around here. Did I ever tell you about this? Called the Denver, the Denver Lutheran Meat Market, <laughs> which is where a bunch of single Lutherans can come to try to find spouses, which would be great. But, but there, see, I mean, there's even that idea of when, when it comes to the question of marriage, it's not. It's not a question of becoming one flesh. It's a matter of love. It's the understanding that marriage is this most is the kind of it's the public declaration of the most intense emotional relationship that I have. And so it's all about what, you know, this connection on the inside. Like you said, it's about finding the soulmate rather than finding the fleshmate. Because if you're looking for the fleshmate, you've got to have, you have bodies that fit together, you know. Uh, it's, it's this very kind of basic sort of thing. Now here's, now, here's the interesting thing to me in this article, because it's not just the idea of the, of the, of the transgender revolution, which I think is very, 
I mean, it's that the the fact that we're in the midst of this transgender question, all these transgender um, uh, policies and and conversations, is very very interesting to me. To just to begin with, I mean, it's this expression of Gnosticism. But now, what we have in this article is very traditionally very liberal feminist colleges trying to figure out if they should let men into the college. <laughs> and they've decided, most of them have decided, that yes, we, should, we can let men into the college if they call themselves women. Now, so you have two, you have two very um, liberal ideas about things. You have a very feminist college trying to uh, wrestle with what it means to be uh, to have women's education and all this sort of stuff. But at the same time, now that they're letting into the into the school uh, men who identify as women, a lot of times they're also letting in women who are born women who identify as men. <laughs> so, so now. So what stands? In other words, the only people who can't get into the college are men who identify as men. But if you're a man who identifies as a woman, or if even if you're a woman who identifies as a man, you can come into the school. You, you see this strange kind of all the way down to the root contradiction. It doesn't. There's no way to make sense of this. Um, <laughs> you know, there's no way that you say, "Oh, yeah, this 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 uh, satisfies logic or any sort of rationale." What do you make of that, Pastor Ketchumar? Well, I think that, again, when you're talking about Gnosticism, this is a secret knowledge. Uh, and, and this idea here of, of being spiritual, this is also a very uh, popular idea, to be spiritual but not religious. Uh, whenever you hear somebody say that, uh, what they mean by not religious is they reject institutions, but God is the one who is a God of institutions. Uh, but this, this common idea of being spiritual, everybody associates spirituality with uh, feelings, with emotions, with your soul, what's on the inside, what you think is your own identity. You know, you have a, your, your mind, your inner being telling you who you really should be on the outside. Uh, so this is a very spiritual thing here. <laughs> and, and so this is a problem. Spirituality in and of itself is not good. I mean, it could be either good or evil. Uh, the devil and his dominions and his doctrines of demons, I mean, this all leads us astray from the truth. This is all deception. Uh, and so what you have is a spiritual battle going on for the soul. And you wage this in the soul, and you try to separate the body from the soul. I mean, it is utterly confusing. It's demonic. What do you say, Pastor Kachamari, and this probably will be our last uh, bit of the conversation, so I want to make sure that we speak. Um, how would you say someone was in front of you and they're wrestling with this, what we call uh, gender dysphoria, with, with confusion about um, their body, if it's a man or a woman? How, uh, how, how would you speak to them, perhaps with the, as they're suffering with the gentleness of Christ? How, how would we address that as pastors? I think in the form of pastoral care, of course, you have to ask the question, are we talking about somebody who is a baptized believer or somebody who is uh, outside the church? Let's call them baptized. Okay, so if you're talking about a baptized believer, uh, then how you would work this pastoral care is pointing them to the identity that God himself gives as a gift, and that identity is found in baptism. That God is the one who has adopted them into his family, and so they belong to 
him, to, to God. He, he's the one who purchased them with the blood of Christ. And so that's their identity. God is the one who establishes their identity. He establishes their identity as creature, uh, part of his creation, but also in Christ, because of the work and the promise you have in baptism, a redeemed creature, redeemed uh, creation. And this is what God wants to do, is he wants to restore, renew, regenerate, and all of this will be finally fulfilled in the resurrection of the body. But we all have these these identity uh, crises, uh, that we're trying to be something different than what God himself has declared us to be. I mean, that, that's what sin is. Uh, Adam and Eve were in the garden. They were the creation of God and the image and likeness of God, and they wanted to be something else. They wanted a different identity throughout the whole Old Testament. This is constantly the battle with Israel. Uh, Israel is brought into the land of Canaan, and they want to be something different. They don't want to be God's people. They want to be like the other people in the land. Uh, they want to be like their contemporaries, who are in an outright state of rebellion against God, who, who stand in pride against God. Um, so, I mean, that temptation is there for all humanity. The, the temptation is there, but it's Christ who takes these sins, and he's with us in the midst of these afflictions, and this is the, the whole beauty of, of Christ taking upon our flesh and blood and being our high priest who knows the temptations himself, and he knows our weakness in the flesh uh, that we have. Fantastic. Pastor Ketchermeyer, how if people want to... You got the Redeemer Theological Academy. Give us the website if people want to hear your weekly lectures on Christ in the Old Testament. Yeah, that, that's uh, RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. <laughs> that is a great resource. That's top shelf theology. RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. Pastor Ketchermeyer, thanks for being on Cross Defense today. Great to have you. Oh, great to be here. This is what Pastor Ketchermeyer said there at the end is really quite fantastic, that Jesus knows all of our weaknesses. He knows all of our temptations, all of them. One of the things that the devil wants to convince us of is that we are tempted like no one else. We have feelings like no one else. We have uh, imaginations like no one else. But Jesus experienced all of these things, and he bore them, and he is able to sympathize us now, sympathize with us, and hear our prayers he stands before the throne of God, back back to where we started at the beginning. He stands before the throne of God uh, as our high priest, who is not there to judge us. He didn't come to condemn the world, but to redeem the world, that the world through him might be saved. That's the doctrine of the Scriptures. Now, like Pastor Ketchermeyer said at the very beginning, we are afraid of letting God be angry at our sin, but we have to, we have to hear the law and its clarity that God is angry at our sin so that we can hear the gospel. That his anger is put away in Christ. And that's the good news that we rejoice in every day. Join us next Monday for Cross Defense. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Cross Defense. Produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518. Or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO.